Hello, and welcome to Water Island Capital's Merger Arbitrage Strategy Update. My name is Lindsay Fitzpatrick, and joining me today are John Arico, the founder and CIO of Water Island Capital, as well as portfolio manager Roger fulton Owens. We know that our listeners are eager to receive an update on our merger arb strategy, so today we'll be detailing how recent volatility has impacted our portfolio and its opportunity set. Hi, John. How are you? Lindsay, good. How are you doing today? Well, thank you. So I know that you provided an update about two weeks ago, and during that update, you drew comparisons of recent volatility to past crises that have impacted our markets. Since that last update, obviously, we are continuing to witness a rapidly evolving situation, and things continue to change so quickly. Could you take us through um, a bit of your perspective on what you see happening in the market today, and how is this comparing to the 07-08 crisis? Sure. Well, you know, Lindsay, over the last uh, 30 days or so, we've been in constant communication with our clients, whether it's in writing or through these podcasts or phone calls that we've held. And my message hasn't changed all that much. What we are seeing today, what we saw last week and the week before, is that continued rush for liquidity on the part of investors, number one, a tremendous amount of deleveraging that's taking place across the investment spectrum, funds both here and in Europe that utilize leverage in in a number of strategies, to enhance returns are being forced to delever. In some cases, we've seen a number of funds liquidated completely, are now out of business. We construct portfolios in this shop based on outcomes that we think will survive and close even beyond the crisis that we're seeing today. Back in 07 and 08, which was the last crisis that we went through, Our focus then, as it was now, was on definitive transactions in the merger and acquisitions universe that were underpinned by strong strategic rationale. And that's the number one driver that dictates the probability of deals closing or not. When you have committed parties to a transaction that are thinking strategically beyond where we are at the moment or beyond the present year or the next two quarters or three quarters, when they're thinking four, five, 10, and 15 years out, they're looking to position their their companies from a competitive standpoint in a stronger fashion than when they entered the merger. So our focus is on strong strategic rationale. Our focus is on those transactions that are not conditioned on financing and also the transactions whereby the parties to the deal are able to meet all their commitments as outlined in their merger agreements. And that's really been our focus in constructing our portfolios for the past 20 years. As we came through the 2007-2008 dislocation, most of the the vast majority of of deals uh, in, in, in our portfolios closed. And that's really the key to distinguish yourself in the merger ARP strategy, and that's been a key for this firm as we've distinguished ourselves, whether it was through the tech bubble bursting or the 9-11 crisis, going back to 2007, 2008, the government shutdown in 2011, it's really our focus on those transactions that will close because avoidance of loss is the key to winning in this strategy. So for us, we've got to navigate through some severe dislocations in the equity and credit markets. That means the prices of many of the securities we hold will lose all relationship to the merger terms. 
that are embedded in those merger agreements. But that too will pass. And what we saw back in 07, 08, what we're seeing today is as rational minds return to the investing marketplace around these transactions, as the levered funds begin, we see uh, their forced selling begin to abate. And as forced sellers have been able to achieve their liquidity needs, then we see some return to normalcy in the relationship between the securities we own and what we expect to achieve when those transactions close. So, you know, for us, it's, it's staying true to what we do, staying focused on strong strategic deals. We have a deep bench today, four to five times deeper than we had in 08, with both credit and equity specialists on the team, risk specialists on the team. Our quant team has been a big support to the way we mitigate and manage this portfolio and allocate capital. And Roger will give you some, you know, some more, some more granularity into the, into actual movements of cash within the portfolio. But this is again another opportunity for folks like us that focus on transactions whose share prices are independent of broad market moves to actually put capital to work and take advantage of this environment to achieve better outcomes in terms of returns for our, for our investors. Sure. Well, it certainly sounds like the team enhance, the team enhancements that have been made are putting us in a better position today, uh, perhaps, than, than we had even been in in the past. And that's reassuring to hear. Now, Roger, turning to you for a moment, um, talk to me a little bit about the impact of, of perhaps the deals on the portfolio. Are, are you seeing deals breaking right now? No, no, we're not. We're not seeing in our portfolio deals breaking, but we do see deals in our universe breaking. And so that just goes to what John was, was, uh, suggesting in his earlier comments that it's, it's really choosing the right deals to partner with when you're constructing a portfolio. We always look for deals that can resonate through these types of bouts of volatility. And so that's just really, having the conversations with management that's really our team like we've said our team has expanded to where we now we can really dive into the real nuts and bolts of why a transaction has been done from the credit profile to the future of the industry through our ESS team and so we get a very good backdrop as to why deals happen rather than you know maybe 15 20 years ago than what we have now but uh, no we deals in our portfolio are closing and and just to give you some statistics uh, just in the past i would say past 3 to 4 weeks we've had almost 22% of our assets come back to us due to deal closures and that's that's really wow. important because a lot of people think in the, in this bout of turmoil you start to think that maybe the acquirer is having second guesses or maybe the financing may not be there. But that statistic should resonate to a lot of our clients because deals are getting done even in the midst of this volatility, which is great because, as John expressed earlier, ever since the financial crisis, our community has shrunk. And so if this liquidity rush to the exits takes place, it overwhelmed it overwhelmed our community pretty significantly to a point where, you know, I'll throw in another statistic, our, our rate of return universe prior to this crisis, so let's just call it February 20th, on an annualized basis, it was 3 to 4%. And then post-crisis, we've looked at things that have 
grown 15 to 20 times. So now we're looking at uh, rates of returns that are 50 to 60%, and that kind of backs into our community. And what happens when you have a community that's too small to take on uh, that liquidity? Well, you need deals to close to replenish the coffers. And that's what's happened in the past three to four weeks. We've had some big, high-profile transactions in spaces that are, I would say, you know, were impacted pretty drastically. Uh, case in point, Air Castle, uh, that was an airline leasing business in the midst of, you know, the crisis that we're seeing in the airline industry. And so that deal was done. And that deal was done because the buyer here had a vision for this company. And the vision was a 10-15 year outlook. And so that's very important, you know, that uh, that's taking place during the course of, you know, kind of the course of this turmoil. But we also get very good reference points. If there is a deal in the universe that broke, we just don't say, oh, that's great, that's not in our portfolio, and ignore it. No, we look into the components of that deal break and see if there's any commonalities to anything that we hold in our current portfolio. So it's it's just, it's always <laughs> checking, rechecking your, sure. your your conviction levels based on what's going on. We recognize that obviously there are certain parts of the market that are are being really really uh, turned upside down because of the turmoil. But are there certain sectors and parts of the world that you would say are coming out of this pretty unscathed? Are there actually pockets of opportunity? Oh, of course, I mean. Uh, as everyone is experiencing uh, being confined in their homes, that technology has become a very big component in making them work efficiently from home. And so there's there's many names who are uh, – there are many transactions that we're, we're in that the, 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 the technology has resonated during this turmoil. And so the value of that company has grown. And so from a commitment level of the acquirer, that's only enhanced the commitment to close the transaction, which makes us feel even better about our position because not only was there a strategic rationale to this transaction, but now it's resonating very early compared to what the the acquirer anticipated, right? And so, yeah, technology is a a very big component. Also, uh, online brokerages, right? You can still trade (laughs) in the comfort of your own. And so that's, you know, that's your E-Trade and, you know, that's your Ameritrade. And so those are transactions that are not being impacted. And especially if you need liquidity, volume has grown. And so with volume, it makes the necessity of those of those brokerage firms even more. But we do have sectors that, you know, we wouldn't say we're cautious on. I would say it's, it's a lot more work to do because in these instances, uh, once you're affiliated with with an industry that people are sour on, you know they sell first and ask questions later. So for us, it's not selling first; it's more of let's research first before we buy. And so that's kind of the tactic we've been using. As an example, the casino business is one that's been hurt during all of these uh, government mandates. And so now it's just kind of seeing, as John keeps saying, how's this company look three months from today, six months from today? And so we, uh, our team conducts that analysis to kind of give us, you know, kind of a range of value based on different scenarios and how we come out of this. Excellent. John, back to you for a second. I know that you don't have a crystal ball but you do have a great deal of experience in the markets. So can you share with listeners what they might be able to expect in the days, weeks, and months ahead? 
specifically, what are those milestones that you're looking for, and how does that impact the current deal selections that are being made and your expectations for deal activity overall? Well, sure. I mean, Lindsay, I think we, when, when we think about the environment that we operate in today, our first concern is our is our current portfolio of companies and ensuring that they have both the staying power and the commitment on the part of both buyer and seller to carry through with those transactions and to have a successful close. So deal selection is paramount to the strategies, paramount to our turn framework, and, and it's, it's the key focus for our team. When we think about deal selection and deal flow, we're looking across the globe. So, of course, whether we're talking about Asia, Europe, Africa, South America, North America, different geographies across the globe are always marching to a different beat, whether we're talking today or looking at a more normalized environment. There's always a recession happening somewhere. There's always a boom happening somewhere on the globe, and that varies also by sector. So today, as, as we think about deal flow, we are starting to see some green shoots out of Asia in terms of economic activity, and we're seeing some of the deals that were in the pipeline in Asia begin to resurface. We're seeing company discussions, investment bankers are back at work. So we're going to see probably a resurgence or an upstart in the number of, of deals that we see Inc. will probably start in Asia first as that economy gets back to work first. You know, Europe and, and North America will follow at some point in time. So we, we do expect a lull. Let's take it back to 2008. We went through a period of 14 months of a pretty difficult or hardship for a lot of different sectors of the economy. And it wasn't until the first quarter of 2009 as the market bottomed out in terms of valuations, equity valuations, that we saw deal flow bottom out. And over the course of 09 into 010 into 11, deal flow began to tick higher and higher and return to normalized levels. But what was, what was interesting in looking back at 09 and the green shoots that came out of 09 into 2010 and beyond were what sectors came out first. Where do we see the deal activity take place first? And different sectors are going to lead the way out of this current environment from a deal flow perspective. It may be the energy sector, for instance, which is facing some pretty tremendous hardship due to the oil price wars, right? And back, if I go back 20 years to 1999, when the last time we had an, a bust in the oil sector, the year following that bust, we saw a tremendous amount of deal activity in the oil exploration and oil services space. We expect we're going to see the same thing here. Those are mergers or combinations that are born out of necessity. Away from that, if you think about the cash that sits on the balance sheets of private equity firms and the strategics, strategic players that are out there, they're going to be sharpening their knives and they're going to be looking for acquisition candidates. And they're going to be, hopefully, for those buyers at better prices than they might have anticipated a year ago or six months ago. So we expect to see a resurgence as strategic and private equity firms look to take advantage of weakened balance sheets or stressed business models to buy assets that they think are truly going to enhance their competitive positioning. So based on how you are envisioning deal activity, can you summarize for the listeners how those expectations moving forward will impact potential return opportunities for the strategy? Yeah, going back again to 2009, what we saw coming out of that deep recession was a number of deals that were inked that were then 
trumped by competitive bidding for other strategic peers in their sectors. So we had a we had probably in 09 the highest number of competitive bidding situations that we had had in the prior decade. And we expect the same thing coming out of this crisis, meaning from a market standpoint, there will be deals that will be inked, but there'll be others waiting in the wings that will look at those asset sales or those prices that the target companies received and they'll and they'll put their own bids on the table. And we think that'll also enhance the return opportunities in our strategy as well. So we look to take advantage of volatility. We're putting money to work. And, you know, Roger came into this and his team came into this crisis with a pretty heavy cash position. And he, as he mentioned, another 20% or so in deals closed. So that capital has been put to work at much wider spreads. We think spreads will stay wide for quite a while. The ARP community and the event community is much smaller than it was, as Roger said, 10 years ago. And we think there's going to be plenty of opportunity to put money to work at, at more attractive return opportunities as well. Let me ask you a question, just because I think it's, it's a question on a lot of our investors' minds. When you say that it's a smaller universe right now, give us the sense of what a normalized deal flow environment was in 2019. Well, sure. I think... If- I think in 2019, we saw Europe, we saw deals uh, emanating out of Europe and Asia as those economies began to turn up a bit. And the U.S. was running very strong. Now, as we, as we're in the second quarter of, of, of 2020, right. we're back into recessionary environments in Asia, in Europe, and the U.S. The pace at, wh- at which we exit those recessions, and of course, no one expects this downturn to be as long as the 2007-2008 financial crisis. But as we as we exit, as the different parts of the world exit their recessionary environments at different points of the year, we're going to see an uptick in deal flow associated with that. I think that uh, when we look at the deal universe today, we invest globally. Today, there's ample deals for us to put capital to work, and we don't think that'll change. We always love to see more deals than there is capital to pursue those opportunities across the broad event-driven community. But we think the event, you know, the event-driven community today doesn't have the large money center banks committing billions and billions of capital into, of their proprietary capital into, into merger transactions. A lot of the larger levered funds have now delevered and maybe some time before they begin to ratchet that leverage back up. And for those of us with cash, um, we're able to continue to, as we have been for the last four weeks, putting that cash to work. And, and deals will continue to close in that portfolio, so we expect that we'll continue to have that cash buffer in front of us as the year progresses. But again, we're looking across the globe at transactions. Our portfolio, typically over the course of 19, uh, we had anywhere between 40 and 65 transactions at any one time in our portfolio. We'll probably come out of the second quarter at the lower end of that range, between 40 and 50. Um, but, but it's we still think, enough to keep us busy, and it's still enough to keep oh, us plenty, productive. Plenty, because there's going to be twists and turns. You know, for deals that are on the books today, deals that were inked a few months ago that won't be closing till the end of the year or early 2020, those are deals that, you know, we, we may not have much exposure to at the moment, but clearly there'll be opportunities for us to put cash into a number of transactions that we've avoided thus far, either because the duration was too far out or because we didn't like the risks that were in front of us in terms of the different hurdles that had to be met. So there's going to be plenty of opportunities for us to continue to put cash to work. We think about what can hold up deals or what can cause a, a, a change in our outlook. And 
The one concern we had early on uh, in this crisis was whether or not the regulatory bodies across the globe sure. would be able to continue to vet the transactions in their jurisdictions uh, without delay. And, and, and while we had a couple of weeks of pushback in terms of the time frames for, for some of these regulatory reviews, most of those regulatory bodies are back online. While they may be working from home, uh, we don't see any major disruptions on the regulatory side. I mean, we're seeing deals approved in China, Europe, and the States uh, over the last four weeks, and and, uh, and and that'll continue. So, you know, it's business as usual for us. I think we just are going to be cognizant of deal selection uh, with a focus on capital preservation and really trying to be as opportunistic as we can be over the over the weeks and quarters ahead. Well, I, I certainly appreciate your optimism, and I, I feel as though many of our listeners will as well. Roger, John, thank you so much uh, for sharing your insight and your perspective with our listeners today. For those of you who joined us, if you have any questions, um, please feel free to reach out to us through our website or through our regional product specialist. Please keep an eye out for additional market updates from our other strategies as well. And in the meantime, please be well. Thank you for joining us.